Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. So today we're, we're going to do something a little bit different, and it's uh, I found myself surprisingly nervous about it this morning, but I'm going to be on the other side of the microphone, so I'm, I'm going to have somebody ask me questions. The reason uh, we decided to do this, I've had several friends who listen to the podcast regularly say, you know what would be really fun is if somebody interviewed you because you're always interviewing people and you're always talking to other people and bringing the story and no one gets to know anything about you. So we think that would be a really good episode. And after it coming up a few times and me kind of uh, saying, oh, no, that's not anything anybody wants to hear, uh, I was finally convinced that we should give it a try. So today I've invited my good friend Jackson Swearer on and he agreed to interview me uh, for this episode. And we may do several of these because there's a lot of uh, ground we could cover, um, but we thought we'd give it a try and see how I work on the other side of the microphone. So I hope you enjoy this uh, experiment in putting me on the other side of the podcast table. Good afternoon here, Jason. It's uh, lovely to be here. And uh, I'm feeling a little bit a little bit anxious about this. I know a little bit about you. Uh, obviously, we've been friends for several years, but um, I'm excited to get to ask you some questions and, and see what we can reveal to your podcast listeners that maybe they don't know about about Jason Probst. So anyway, I'm, I'm Jackson Swear. I'm uh, here on that podcast and touch to interview Jason. And um, I thought I'd start out by asking you to share the story about how we met I think that will help um, listeners understand maybe a little bit about why I'm asking you questions in the first place. <laughs> well, the way we met was through uh, Stage 9 production. We were both, I think, enlisted to participate in a reading of Our Town. And uh, so through that process, we got to practice a lot together and um read the scripts and eventually put on the performance. And in the course of that, we started talking more and hanging out a little bit more and uh, started sharing a little bit about our experiences and our views, I guess, on, on things. And that sort of sparked that friendship all out of a reading of Our Town, which is a little bit ironic because it's Our Town. It's <laughs> exactly. And, and here we are on, on that podcast in Hutch, right? Uh, which is Our Town. Um, yeah, I love that. And I just remember... I, I knew who you were because of your work at the paper and I'd read your column in the past, but I'd never really met you. And I, I remember some of those initial conversations being very in, interesting and intriguing. And um, I always thought at the time, I'm, I, so I'm a biased interviewer. I guess that's the part of what I wanted to get out up front <laughs> is that, you know, I'm, I'm a Jason Probst fan uh, and um, I've really appreciated the friendship that we've been able to develop over the years. Through ongoing conversations about many, many things. But one of the first conversations, though, was at Carl's. That's right. I, <laughs> I seem to remember. So the, this was after one of the rehearsals. We got together over a couple of beers and, and somehow started talking about politics and political philosophy. And um, I, I don't know how much we you want to share about that a conversation, but it was. I remember that being one of the first times I'd really gotten to sit down and talk with you, um, other than just reading your column. And it was unveiling, unveiling the real Jason Probst. Well, I remember a lot about that night and some things uh, I don't, but I remember the conversation about uh, Plato's Republic, which 
no one talks about played at a bar in a conversation. Nobody brings up the Republic. Nobody talks about Plato. And uh, that struck me because I, I like talking about those sort of things. I just remember there weren't, there aren't very many people or there haven't been very many people I've encountered in life who actually enjoy talking about the philosophy of politics and the history of politics and how it shapes our world and what has happened historically and what it means in the context of today. And so to have somebody who could have that conversation and wasn't doing it grudgingly, like I'm indulging Jason in his boring conversation here. It was actually somebody who wanted to have that conversation and who knew uh, more than I did about it and could, you know, talk to me about it. So that was that was one of the defining, I, I, or one of the things at the beginning that said, okay, this is this is going to be one of my people going forward. Yeah, right. I love that. From there, I want to take us take us back a little bit because I think there must be quite the story to tell to figure out how what you have described as a poor kid from Nickerson mm -hmm. uh, ends up in a bar uh, talking to Jackson Swearer about Plato's Republic. <laughs> so somewhere along the way, uh, there, there must have been a lot of, a lot of things that happened um, and that shaped you and the, the man that you became um, a great thinker and a thoughtful person who cares about his community, I think. But it all kind of starts being the poor kid in Nickerson, right? So tell me a little bit about that. You know, when did you first, did you, did you were you born in Nickerson? No. <clears throat> so when did you first move to Nickerson? Um, I was a baby. I was born in Wickenburg, Arizona. And as the story goes, uh, shortly after my birth, we... Uh, moved to Kansas. And I, I don't know how my parents picked Nickerson. I don't know if they threw a dart at the map or, or what they did, but somehow ended up in Nickerson. And so for all of my uh, years in childhood, I, I grew up in Nickerson. Um, and, it, and it was, and so I didn't know, I didn't know any different. I mean, Hut, Hutchinson and Nickerson were kind of the center of my world in those years. Um, more so as it became later, but you know, Hutch at the time was the big town that you went to, to uh, go to the mall or go shopping or anything like that. Um, but Nickerson was home and it was, you know, it's an idyllic little town. We'd, I'd walk to school most days. There was a pond outside of town that my friend Nate Reed and I would go to, uh, particularly when we were like probably fifth, sixth, seventh grade, somewhere around there, we'd go to almost every day. Um, what do you do at the pond? whatever we wanted. Very independent. I mean, you know, you hear the term latchkey kid. I was just <laughs> thinking about the term latchkey kids. Yeah, absolutely. When we basically had, I mean, our parents were working, so we, we had to take care of ourselves. I mean, both my mom and dad, when I was younger, my mom didn't work outside of the home. So like early years, like kindergarten, first grade, I remember, you know, I'd come home from school and she'd be at home doing baking or, or whatever. I'd usually come home to cookies or cinnamon rolls or something like that. But as we got a little bit older, she, she went to work outside the home. So we had this big block of time after school with nothing to do. So we'd usually grab our BB guns or our fishing poles or both. And we'd go down to the Maxine's pond, uh, just outside of town. And we, I mean, we did all sorts of things there. We'd fish, uh, we'd shoot snapping turtles because they ate the fish. Um, we'd 
there was a little creek that ran through it. So we'd try to dam it up because we really, the pond would go dry sometimes in the summer. So we'd, we'd invent these rock dams that we thought would hold the water back and keep the pond full and everything. So just a lot of time spent down there. And sometimes we'd roam through the creek bed too. Um, you know, one thing about Nickerson that, that I always look back fondly on, particularly when I was uh, in middle school or younger, um, was the amount of imagination you could deploy. I mean, we, we would go in that creek bed and we'd play like we were, you know, in an army battle or something. And when we were younger, I remember we'd go all over town to like these weird empty buildings and we would imagine that monsters lived in them or whatever. I mean, just anything that you could come up with as a kid in that town, you could, you could imagine. So it, it's one of those things as you get older, you're like, oh, this little town that I live in is so dull and boring and I wish I didn't live here. Um, but when you're a little kid, it's just, you have the freedom to just roam through the whole town, ride your bike wherever you want. And it just seems uh, like, like you can create anything you want. I know you have uh, a younger brother. Was he trying to tag along and hang out and go down to the pond or what was that dynamic like? Um, and I asked that question in part because I know I have a, a younger sister and I've learned later in life that she wanted to hang out more when we were growing up and, and maybe I ignored her a little bit. Was that a similar experience that you had or were you hanging out with your brother and, and dragging him around to the pond with you? It was, I would say it was more of a re reluctantly, if he came along, it was reluctant. It was, you know, there, I went through phases with my brother when, when he was little, I really cared about him and wanted to watch out for him and everything and protect him. And then there was a, period where you're trying to you're, you're trying to grow up a little bit and you got this little brother tagging along and it's very frustrating because you can't do anything with your friends and you got to bring your little brother along and whatever and uh so there was that period of time where i just really didn't want him around and i would rather that he'd find his own friends and do his own thing uh and then later in life you know in high school we got along better and we kind of returned to that original relationship where we enjoyed each other and still today get along really well um but yeah, certainly during those years, I would have rather that he found something else to do. He was, we'd play football, aside from Maxine's Pond, we, we lived across the street from this empty lot and I'll, we'd just do like these pickup football games over there and people just like neighborhood kids would start roaming over there and, or you'd go to their house and knock on the door and see if they could come play football or whatever. And so we'd just do these like scratch football games over there and my little brother would always tackle and he was little, I was bigger and he was little. So he wasn't worth much as a football player. So it was always kind of frustrating, but he, he was your brother. So you had him there and, and you did that. But, um, but yeah, I definitely, there was a, a big chunk of time there where I thought, just go find your own thing to do. I'm, I'm too big for you. So you're a pretty tall man mm -hmm. now. Were, were you always kind of one of the, the bigger kids growing up too? Or did that happen later in, in life that you kind of, spurred up and became one of the tall kids. Well, I think I, I was always a little bit bigger, um, but particularly I remember in sixth grade, sixth grade, I grew like a huge amount in one year. So then all of a sudden I was much, much bigger than, than most of the people in my class, ex with the exception of maybe one or two people. Um, so yeah, that, you know, talking about my brother is kind of funny. My, my brother was little, but he had a mouth on him. And so he'd just mouth off to people all the time. And I, I wasn't mouthy yet at that age. And uh, anyway, I remember one story, we were walking from home from school and he was getting in a, 
argument with somebody and then it got a little bit out of his control and he uh all i heard and i was walking ahead of him and all i heard was well my brother's gonna kick your ass and i turned around and <laughs> i found myself in a fight because my brother not because of anything i had done but because my brother had decided that i would fight his battle for him and and i f seemed to find myself in that sort of position sometimes but um yeah i was quite a bit bigger than everyone uh, in my class that's interesting and and uh fighting for the little guy uh all the way back then as well yeah well my especially if you're if you have a little, a little guy brother who can't keep his mouth shut there you go <laughs> there you go um what was uh school like for you back then in those days well i didn't actually do very well in school um i did it, it i remember i think i did all right in kindergarten um we're we're really stretching if the first the last time you can remember school going well growing up was kindergarten. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember, I have these stories throughout school that I remember that I think must have stuck in my mind. Um, I know in kindergarten, the teacher told us to draw a tornado and I decided to draw it from like a looking down on the tornado perspective. So I drew just like this concentric circle getting smaller and smaller. And then she came and told me that I had done it wrong. And I looked at what everyone else had done. Well, they had all done a side perspective. And uh, I remember thinking uh, even then that it wasn't wrong. It was just different, you know, that, and nobody had told me that it had to be drawn from a certain perspective. And that's the perspective I chose. Um, yeah. First grade, I got in trouble for saying a very bad cuss word um, and uh, and for drawing too much. I drew a lot. And so instead of paying attention to class, I would draw all the time. And I, th I think at the time I was pretty uh, talented at it, but um, I just got in trouble because I was drawing all the time. And then I think I just struggled. Uh, I think I th frankly, I think I had some uh, maybe some behavioral issues or maybe emotional regulation issues that that weren't taken care of. But so I kind of struggled through school a little bit, but until I got to middle school. And then um, I, I mean, I had various teachers in there that were very good, but um, Mrs. Gladden in the seventh grade was the one that finally kind of, I don't know if she saw what was going on with me, but um, she made me feel uh, smart. And that was probably one of the first times I remember feeling that way. She said that, uh, she said that uh, I had the kind of mind that I, I would probably be her doctor someday. Um, and then she, you know, would explain like, you're curious, you want to know things. And that was the other thing. She would indulge my questions. I mean, I had questions. I've always been very curious. I always wanted to know how things work, why they work. I wanted to try to understand things. And, uh, and I never was willing to just accept what people told me I, I wanted. And it wasn't because I was being obstinate, although I think that's how most parents or adults viewed it at the time. I really was trying to gain some understanding and knowledge about things. Um, but she actually, you know, took that and like kind of indulged that in me. And that, that made me feel really good. She also put me to work on her farm and that took care of that latchkey issue for probably, probably truthfully took care of that in years that would have been very bad for me to have a bunch of free time on my hands. Yeah. I think we often hear stories about, you know, the, one or two key supportive adults that really help help can help kids and that can be an important part of becoming a resilient thriving uh, person 
And so I love that, um, the story of Mrs. Gladden. And I just wondered if you if you want to speak any more to the important role that, that that kind of support can play and how that maybe kept you out of trouble a little bit and, and set you up to launch you uh, on to be successful later. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what she did was, I mean, first and foremost, I think she put in me kind of a, a belief in myself that I hadn't had before. Um, and I'm not sure that I, even after that point, always had that, but at least it was a kind of a benchmark, right? That there, there was this teacher that thought this about me um, and thought that I was capable of, of doing things. There, there were other teachers later on that were in very similar in, in, in helping in that way. But to be able to look at and see someone, see a student and see all of their mischievousness and all of their honoriness uh, and see it for something other than just being a hassle or see it as something other than um, bad behavior, that, that was a big deal for me that somebody said, well, this isn't a kid that's bad. This is a kid who's curious and his questions aren't being answered and his uh, mind isn't being challenged. And that's the source of this. And, and her response to that was, well, if you have questions, let's answer them. Not, not even answer them. Let's find out. Like I would ask questions. She'd be she would say, well, let's find out. Um, and she would, Maxine's Pond, remembering that, you know, that was a hangout place for us, but it was only about two blocks from the school. Um, so one day in science class, she marched the whole class down there and we collected little vials of pond water and took them back and looked at them, the water under the microscope so we could see all the protozoas and amoebas that were in the water and everything. And that's just fascinating uh, to learn these things of the world that I hadn't ever learned before um and and to have that kind of belief and to kind of channel that energy into learning and asking questions and learning how to learn like learning how to find the answers uh that was i mean you, you can't even put a price on that it was it was just it was transformative the same thing happened later in high school i had a typing teacher who did much the same thing i had a government teacher who saw something in me and and put me into uh, well model legislature, which wasn't something. I mean, it was for good kids. It wasn't for the kids that got in trouble like I did. But he insisted that I be a part of that. Um, I think over the protest of some other people who thought that I shouldn't be a part of it. Um, but that was another big experience. But there have been times that that, that those teachers that really saw something and pushed me uh, made a huge difference. At that time, um, did you already have aspirations to maybe one day be a state legislator or was that not even something even a young child with a very active imagination could imagine for yourself? Well, you know, like I, I had no reason to think that, that I would, but, but I, I really loved government. I loved history. I loved the stories about how disagreements were settled. I loved the stories about how um, compromises were reached, um, about how there'd be these really intense disagreements and that people could talk them out and debate them or argue them and then find a way through them. I, I, always, I always liked that. And I, I think I did probably think, oh, this would be something I'd want to do. But, but I also never thought that I would. I thought... 
Um, I don't know that I, I didn't have a whole lot of direction as a teenager, so I don't think I thought that I would do anything like this. I, th I thought that I'd just work. Yeah, so, so to working, so you graduate high school, mm -hmm. and then you're thrown into the working world. Yeah. How, so what were you doing? Were you working through high school? I mean, I know you worked on, the, on a Gladden's farm, um, yeah. but what, what else were you doing for gainful employment? Well, yeah, I worked, I worked all through, um, like for middle school, I worked on the farm and then I got, um, I, wa I wanted to, I wanted to work. I wanted to drive. When you live in Nickerson, um, it, you have to drive if you want to do anything fun. Because you gotta, you gotta go to Hutchinson you, in you order to, to get to Hutch. the mall and Hutch, right? So you, yeah. then you gotta have a car so that you can get to the mall and Hutch. Yeah. Right. And that requires insurance and probably, gas probably and, your parents weren't buying the car for you and paying for the insurance and the uh, gas i'm guessing that that doesn't strike me as the the childhood that you were experiencing no 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 there was not going to be any uh paying for my car or paying for my insurance or buying the gas or any of that so it was pretty it was pretty important that i got a job and worked and I'm, i think that my first job out, like outside of the farm was at Eidelman Telemarketing, which people have been around Hutch for a while would remember that place, but it was a call center and we would call lists of people and try to sell them credit card insurance. And this was a, the early days of like identity theft and credit card fraud or whatever. And so for $50, you could buy this credit card protection program and it would guarantee that you wouldn't be hit for fraudulent charges or anything like that. And I worked there for uh, a couple, at least a couple of years because it was, it was one of the higher paying jobs you could get. I think at the time minimum wage was four seventy five dollars or $5 an hour or something like that. But if you worked at Eidelman and you worked a certain number of hours, you would get at least, I think six and a half dollars an hour. And then if you sold enough, then you could actually get your pay up a little bit more. So for a part-time job, um, it, it worked. It was awful because you just called people all night long and then you had to work on Saturday morning uh, to get your full pay. And uh, so I did that. And then I, I left that. Well, I think I was asked to leave. I think I got fired from that job eventually. Mm. Um, but I did that. And then I ended up working at uh, Bonanza, which is up on, it was a steakhouse up on East 17th. Okay. And I think I landed there because there were a bunch of Nickerson people. My friend Derek worked there. My friend Tim worked there. Um, I can't remember who all worked there, but there were a whole bunch of Nickerson people that worked there. So it just, you know, it was easy to get a job there and everybody fit right in. And I worked there for several years and that was, uh, that, I mean, it was a fun experience, but um, the, again, it was kind of job that didn't pay a whole lot. Um, but you had some fun and by then I had moved, I had moved into Hutch, but yeah, I worked all through high school. I worked in middle school. Um, even before that I had like, uh, this was my first real lesson in work. I, this lady in town hired me to, uh, mow her lawn, um, for $5. And so I'd mow her lawn for $5. And then, uh, then she wanted me to clean her gutters out. Well, I, in my mind, I thought, well, that'll be more than $5, but it wasn't. It was mow the lawn and do the gutters for $5. And she kept stacking more jobs on, but she never wanted to pay more than $5. And so I got away from that one because I, I didn't think that I was doing a lot more than $5 worth of work, even back then. Wow. Yeah, that's funny. Um, 
Uh, I'm sure you have some later work experiences of more work getting piled on you without additional compensation. I think that's something a lot of people can probably relate to. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned going and working with the, at the restaurant with all of your Nickerson friends. And one of the things that I know from your past that I think that maybe not everybody knows is that at one point in time, you were the proud owner of a restaurant. Is that true? That is true. Um, so restaurants are a notoriously challenging business to be in. There's a very high failure rate. I'm just curious what, and I, I think it's not to spoil the story for the listeners, but I don't think the restaurant was successful. It was not. Right. So, so tell us about that. How did you even get into having a restaurant and um, what was going on in your life that you thought that was a good idea? <laughs> why, did, why didn't that work out? Well, there's a couple of reasons it didn't work out um, and a couple of reasons I ended up doing it in the first place. Um, I worked at Bonanza and while I was working at Bonanza, I was an assistant manager and I think I made 200, I think I made $200 a week at that job. Um, But then I found out I was going to have a baby on the way. And uh, so I thought, well, this isn't going to work. So then I ended up taking a job at McPherson at a restaurant that had health insurance and paid $250 a week. So I jumped ship and took the, the better job and, and did that. And I was there for about a year. Um, but I was like, oh, I was so ambitious when I was young, I was just gonna, you know, do everything and I was going to rule the world and everything. So, um, I had seen, I'd been watching this restaurant in Heston that was attached to a hotel and I'd kind of been in conversations with a couple of people about it. And I decided, um, at, I, I made the decision before I was 21. Um, but by the time I was 21, I had already gone over and started operating that restaurant, signed a lease with the hotel, borrowed some money and, uh, set it up and it was good. I mean, and people seem to be happy with the food. I was a good cook. Um, and I, I understood how to manage food costs. I understood how to manage labor costs. Um, there were a couple of, you know, it's a small town, so you never could get quite the volume that you really needed for a place like that. There, there were other couple wrinkles with um, utilities that cost me a little bit more than, than it probably should have. But the, at the end of the day, it was just hard to make it all work. I remember when I walked away from it, um, I remember that the, some of the, the bank at the time said, well, you know, your loss for a first year on a restaurant isn't bad. It's like, we expect you to lose money your first year. It's not bad. But my daughter was like a year old at the time. And I never saw my family um, unless they were in the restaurant working. And uh, I just, and, and there, and there was also like a personal tragedy in there too, with one of my employees. And when I put all those things together, it just kind of made me decide that I wasn't something I wanted to keep doing. You want to talk about that at all? Yeah, we can. I mean, we can talk about that. Um, I had an employee named uh, Go BNA who was from Ethiopia and him and I became very good friends while while he was working there. And I remember when I hired him, um, he had well, before I opened, I was taking applications. I was hiring dishwashers and cooks and whoever else I thought I might need. And I probably overhired and that was <laughs> cost me a little bit of money. But I remember that Go came in. And he asked about putting in an application and I told him 
that I had already taken, I had already filled all the positions. And I remember the look of disappointment on his face. He was horribly disappointed. And so that struck, that stuck with me. So then when there was an opening or one of the people that I'd hired didn't work out, he was the first person I called. So he started working for me. And during that time, I've always been fascinated to hear about life from other parts of the world and how people, you know, how people live life in another country, but how they also view America from, from their perspective and how they, um, just the differences. It's just fascinating to me to learn about different cultures. So we would spend time after we were done working for the day, we'd spend a lot of time after that talking about things. And, um, I'd ask him all sorts of questions about Ethiopia. He lived in the capital at Ababa, and so he'd tell me all about life there and how he grew up. And he was actually, by Ethiopian standards, his family was pretty well off. Um, but still, there were just huge differences in how we approach life and how they approach life. So we we did that, and we got to be very close. But he died in a car accident. Um, I want to say it was March. Because I remember it was one of the first nice weeks of the year, and it was on a Sunday, and he'd been working all day. And him and uh, another a cook that I had named Mike and myself had closed the restaurant on Sunday, and we said something about going and driving around on dirt roads and uh, just to en- enjoy the weather, you know. And uh, so we're driving on this dirt road outside of town, and I'm behind them. Mike and Go are in the car in front of me, and their car just flies off the road and hits a ditch and flips over, and uh, it rolls a bunch of times, and I, I stop in the middle of the road, and when the car stops moving and the dust settles, I can see Go lying out in the field, and so I ran up to him, and, and when I did, I could see that the car had landed on him in one of the rolls. He had been ejected, and the car rolled over on him, and, and he was dead, and... Um, it was it was tragic, and you know it's a small town, so there was a lot of talk about it and everything. And I think I was pretty young and sensitive at that time, and it bothered me a lot. Um, and so I think that was that was one of those things that really really bothered me at the time, um, just the way people reacted to it. And I felt, and I was probably traumatized in ways that I didn't realize until years later, just being there at the at the scene and everything. Um, but I remember that, uh, you know, it's one of those people that Go was one of those people that he was. He came to the United States to go to college, and then he always said that when he graduated, he was going to go back to Ethiopia and he was going to stand up a manufacturing company. And I asked him why. Why would you do something like that? Why is that what you want to do with your life? In my view, it was like you could stay here, you could do things here, you could probably get a you know, job with the State Department or nursing or whatever. And he said that manufacturing and setting up a company that employed people in Ethiopia would be the best thing he could do to help his country. And I I always remember that conversation because he was, I sometimes wonder what, um, how the world might have been different if he had not died Mm because he was a really remarkable person. Yeah. Sad. Yeah, it was, it was very sad. This is the point where if you had this sort of podcast where we like cut to commercial and took a break, this would be a really nice moment to take a deep breath and like have me read some ad copy uh, so that we could get from this moment uh, to the next. 
but instead you're just going to have to suffer through me vamping for about 15 seconds so we can get away from the topic of great personal tragedy and move along to um, maybe something that hopefully uh, we'll be a little happier to talk about. Um, although I think also on the theme of major life events and major happenings, part of that story of the restaurant motivation to go into it, part of the motivation to leaving as well had to do with, you know, a young family mm -hmm. that you had and the birth of your daughter, Erica. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. What, how did your perspective on life change when Erica was born? And how did, how do you think that that influenced the, the course of your life? Oh, that, that absolutely changed everything and, and changed my motivation for anything I did after that and, um, and, and did shape my perspective on, uh, frankly, like in so many ways that I see unfairness in the world. Um, you know, on paper, looking at my background and my parents' income and the work they did um, and the way we had to live, um, there, there's, I mean, that, there's nothing on paper that would say um, that these people are going to be okay. We, we have generational poverty in our family. We have uh, generational uh, mental health issues, all these things in our family. So there's nothing that says that that should be, that we're going to be, you know, okay. We didn't grow up with like an expectation of going to college. We didn't grow up with an expectation that um, you were ever going to do anything but work. You, we didn't really grow up with the expectation that you were going to be able to retire comfortably um, or that you'd even live that comfortably. You were just, it's its like Appalachian work till you die thinking. And uh, that's pretty much what it was. So I remember when, when my daughter was born, it was, uh, it kind of struck me that I, I wanted to try to do something different and try to do something better. And so um, I was committed then to working. I was like, I, I will work and do what I have to do to make sure that these kids have, or this uh, child has what she needs. And then later, of course, my son Mitch came along and, and that was equally compelling to me that I had to make sure that they're okay. Um, but we, we did that and it was, I mean, I wanted to try to do something that would financially improve our lives and I wanted to do something that would um you know just I can't think of the right word for it but just in overall just put us and the kids in a better position for life um and of course then when the you know restaurant didn't work out th that did the opposite I was uh not only was I not in a better I was in a weakened financial position and then I was in a place where I had to uh, just take whatever job I could to try to make the, make the bills and, and do that. And that, so then from that point forward, you know, I took that, I took a, well, I worked the temp agency for a while and then that, that ended. And then that ended up working at mega manufacturing. And I think, I think I started that job at like $10 an hour and then ended it at 13 35 or 13 50 an hour. So I never made much money and we we never had and i mean and it was very and it was discouraging and that's what i think kind of gets me about a lot of you know what i work on now and and what i talk about now i i just remember the feeling of that and that's why i think people don't really understand about poverty or people who are working and and are poor is that the 
it's every day, right? It's every day looking at your kids and saying that you're not able to give them what you think they deserve. It's every day of working and trading your life for a wage that's not ever going to be enough to get you out of the place that you're in. Um, you're, you're, you're doing all these things and, and then, or then maybe your car breaks down or your hot water tank goes out. And now you thought you were getting ahead and you finally have a thousand dollars in your savings account, but you're going to spend 900 of it on fixing your car so you can keep going to work. And it took you a year to save that. And who knows how long it's going to take you this time. And it's just, it just seems like so many families, it's just one thing after another, after another. And I just think people get kicked in the teeth that many times. A lot of people after a while just kind of throw their hands in the air and say, they're not going to mess with it anymore. So you're, you're working this job at mega. It's hard to make, hard to make ends meet. Um, you're a machinist, mm -hmm. right? So probably, probably most people understand what that, that job is, but you're, so you're, you're in charge of a machine that's, that's making a metal part. Mm -hmm different kinds of metal parts. So you have to adjust the machine so that it will make the different parts that you need to make. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's about what the job is like. Right. So, um, and at some point here you start, you start going kind of back to school. Mm -hmm. Um, was that mostly online or were you taking some classes at, at HCC or how did, how did you juggle that? Mo mostly at HCC. Um, I, yeah, so my first job at Mega was not even considered a machinist job. It was there. There was this big grinder table. It has a magnetic table uh, that you'd put parts on, and then it had a giant grinding wheel above it. And you'd slowly inch this grinding wheel down to get the parts to the right depth or whatever height they were supposed to be. I'd spend ten hours a day watching this table just go back and forth, back and forth. And I thought to myself, if this is how I have to spend the rest of my life, I'll I'll go out of my mind. Um, machining was a little bit better because you got to kind of play with the programs a little bit and do some things, but that part drove me nuts. So yeah, I decided I, I got to go, I got to go to school. Um, I didn't come out of high school thinking I'd go to college. I actually came out of high school uh, thinking I would go in the military. I think my dad had been in the military and he had, uh, kind of impressed on me based on some of my behavioral uh, issues and the amount of trouble I got into that maybe the military would be the best option for me. Um, but then I, then I realized that I didn't like people telling me what to do. So I didn't know why I was going to a place where that was going to happen all the time. But yeah, I ended up in mega and I was like, I have to do something different. I have to find something that's for me a little, uh, more in line with what I, what I like to do. I like to read. I like to study. I like to research very little of that can be done when you're operating a machine all day. Some people love it. My, I have friends who they, they can't imagine their life being anything else, but they, they love doing that work. And it is a, for some people, it's the perfect career. It just wasn't for me. Um, so anyway, yeah, I started going to school. So I was working at the time I worked, we worked 10 hours Monday through Thursday. We worked eight hours on Friday and we worked four or five hours on Saturday when I started going to school and I would bring a backpack with me to work and it'd have all my school books and everything else in it. And, uh, I would take it, I would have clothes in it. Then I would get off of work and I would clean myself up in the, in the wash basin basin at work. And then I'd throw these other clothes on and put my dirty clothes in another bag and then 
then I'd go off to school and I'd probably be there until nine or 10 o'clock at night, uh, most of the most nights of the week, really. And then I'd go home and do it all over again. And I did that for a number of years um, one until of my, I finally got through. One of my favorite um, stories that I think that you've shared with me from that time was uh, your creative efforts to get some reading done even while you were stuck there in front of the machine. Um, do you want to, can you share uh, with your listeners how you managed to get a little bit of that reading done while you were waiting for the machine to do its job? Yeah, that's, that is a funny story. So you, you really, when you do that kind of work for a while, you get, you almost develop like a, like a sixth sense about how, how long it takes for uh, the machine to run its cycle. So I'd, uh, I'd be there and I had a toolbox at my workstation and I would lay a blueprint for the part that I was running um, on top of my toolbox, but I'd put a book, a school book or whatever I was supposed to be working on. I would put that in my top drawer and I would open it up just so it was outside of the blueprint and I'd be reading and, but it would look like I was looking at the blueprint. I didn't need to look at the blueprint. I knew that part inside and out. I'd run thousands of them. Um, but the, I got a lot of reading done that way because I could hide those books underneath the blueprint and it didn't look like I was wasting time or whatever. And so I, I finished a couple of good novels that way, um, but only uh, a minute at a time. You know, I'd read for a minute and then I'd change the part out because you have to meet a production quota, you know. Right, right. You can't just be reading the whole time, <laughs> yeah. but you can get your reading in 45, 60 seconds at a time. Yeah. So I did that pretty much the whole time I was there. Um, I also did this thing. We had these little tags. I had a lot of ideas. You know, I just, when I had time to think, if I wasn't reading, I was thinking. And so we had these little tags that you're supposed to put on each um bin of parts and it would label how many were on each layer but on the back it was blank and so i would like draw out ideas or write out ideas on those blanks and i would come home with like stacks of of cards with like random ideas that that just needed they didn't go anywhere they just need to be out of my head but yeah you you couldn't just sit around if you if the, the difference is if i just had a book in my hand somebody would have come up and yelled at me and said you're wasting company time right um but if i hid my book in a drawer and put a blueprint over it. Nobody was the wiser. And I always met the production quota, so it was never an issue. Right. So meeting production quotas or not, um, eventually you had to leave Mega. Um, I got laid off. You got laid off. Yeah. Um, something which I, you know, as we're recording this podcast just last week, I think 69 people got laid off over at Siemens. So mm -hmm. that's, this is our, that experience of losing your job and having to deal with whatever the company's offering to you is when they're laying you off and all that. How did that, uh, that's what's very, very live in the minds of many people in this community right now. Um, what was that experience like? Um, I imagine it must've been frustrating to lose your job in that kind of way. The, the thing I always think about that is that I, you know, I, I was going to school because I didn't like, the work. I didn't like the job necessarily, um, but it's the job I had. And, uh, and I think this, but you know, the other thing about jobs like this is you generally get paid just enough not to go get a different job. And that was the case there. I mean, when I was looking at leaving and maybe going to another place, I would find that the wages were lower and, and substantially lower, um, an, enough that it wouldn't make sense for me to leave this job so I could go take this other job that I might like better, but that would imperil my family. 
Um, so I wasn't particularly happy with the job. Um, but the thing is that once it, once I lost it, uh, I, I was really sad and upset that I lost it. And now I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. I don't know how I'm going to make any money. I don't know, uh, what it's going to take to get another job. A bunch of other people, this was after nine 11, they'd been laying people off at this place for a year, every, every week. Um, the foreman would come by with a notebook and you knew that he had three or four names on it of people who were going to lose their job that week. And Friday afternoon, everybody's nervous, wondering if it's going to be them. He's walking around the plant looking for someone and you think, God, I hope he, I hope it's not me this week. Um, and you know, you'd see other people get laid off and, and they'd be your friends and you were sad that they got laid off, but you were glad that it wasn't you. And that was a weird emotional thing to process of, of, about feeling not good that somebody got laid off, but not sad either because you still had your job. So yeah, so I lose this job and I'm now I'm just beside myself. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and, and one of the things I think happens in particularly in uh, a manufacturing industry is if they're laying off at one place, it probably means that it, they're laying off at other places too, right? I mean, it's not so, like you so can, your your ability to go get a job somewhere else doing something similar might be might be real hard, um, and, yeah. when, and that was the case uh, here. Yeah, because it like after nine eleven, like a lot of manufacturing slowed down, a lot of the economy slowed down after nine eleven. Um, so it wasn't yeah, there was not a scenario where you could just walk you know over to Krauss and 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 get a job over there or go to any of the other manufacturers in town. You, generally, if if one if they're laying off, it's like an industry-wide effect that you're seeing. So it wasn't like you could just go get another job in that field. Um, but fortunately, by that point, I I had gotten almost all the way through school, so I was pretty close to having my bachelor's degree by that point. Um, and that's when I, I I really found that I enjoyed writing. I remembered that I enjoyed it in middle school and high school too, but somewhere over time I'd forgotten how much I liked writing until I went back to school and I had took the English comp classes and remembered, you know, and had again had teachers that said, you're, you're really good at this. Um, both my econ teacher and my English comp two teacher stressed on me that um, you have to finish going to school. You're, you're, too, um, your mind is too good to not do that. And you're too good at some of these things to not finish it up. Um, and that was always in my mind too, but yeah, so I liked writing and after I got laid off, I just kind of processed it by writing something, uh, about that weird dynamic of watching other people get laid off and being happy that they did and you didn't. And then eventually the feeling that you have when you get laid off and it's this job that you weren't even sure you liked. Um, but now it was the thing that kept your family well and you were paranoid and freaked out and didn't know what to do. And uh, so I wrote about that and I sent it to the Hutch News. And I don't know why I just kind of did that on a lark. And then that's how I ended up at the Hutch News because the publisher said, this is really good and we like this and maybe you should come work for us. And so I was very excited and did that and and applied and that's yeah that's how i ended up with dutch news so what was your what was your bachelor's degree uh, oh it's in um management business management okay yeah okay. so nothing at all related to journalism not related to all. journalism but you enjoyed writing and you had you know you'd gotten your bachelor's degree so you were 
probably officially qualified to get a job at the paper, although that bachelor's degree probably had nothing to do with your ability to do that job. No, um, no. It was funny when I went in to apply, they had me take a test. Um, I had to take a three part test. They decided that they would put me on the copy desk. And that's kind of back then it was where they put the paper together, um, edited the copy, wrote the headlines, things like that. So they decided that that if they were if they were going to hire me, that's where they wanted to put me. And so I had to take a three part test. I had to take a test on um, spelling and grammar had to take a test on um, current events, and I had to take a test on AP style. Well, I didn't even know that there was an AP style, uh, so I bombed that section of the test, but I did well on the other two. And so I think that gave, made them feel a little more comfortable about giving me a chance. So I did that, and then um, I had to retake the entire test 90 days later, but I used the 90 days to study for the the AP style book so that when I took it again, I did know what AP style was and I knew it pretty well. And so I, after that, I, I passed the test, did well on it and then stayed doing that uh, and worked on copy desk for a couple of years after that, before moving out to be a, a reporter. Hi everyone. This is your producer, Chris cutting in. Uh, I just want to let you know that the, the interview is about halfway done, but we're going to go ahead and cut it here for this week. And you can join us again next week to catch the second half of the interview with Jackson and Jason. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.